we created our first prototypes and then we invited them back in and I was so excited. And then one by one, everybody went, this doesn't work for me. This doesn't work for me. And I remember feeling so deflated and, and, and thinking, oh, we didn't do it right. And our head designer said, looked at me and said, what are you crazy? This is amazing. We absolutely did it right. Welcome to Made for Us, a podcast about the intersection of innovation and inclusion. It's for anyone who's curious about how to develop products that work better for all of us. I'm your host, Tosin Suleiman. My guest today is Terry Bryant, the founder of Guide Beauty, a collection of makeup tools and products designed to be used by anyone, regardless of skill, ability, or disability. A former celebrity makeup artist, Terry tells me how a Parkinson's disease diagnosis made her realize what was lacking in the design of everyday tools like eyeliner and mascara, and the challenges many people face in applying makeup. This can be such a joyful, fun space. It's self-celebration. It's a beautiful community. And so the thought that somebody would be excluded is, is a bit devastating to me. So if somebody says, I want to be there, but I can't because, I want to find the answer to that. In this episode, we talk about the three-year development process to create Guide Beauty products and what it was like launching the brand in the middle of the COVID pandemic. Here's our conversation. Terry Bryant, founder of Guide Beauty, and I've been a makeup artist and educator for well over two decades, and I started Guide Beauty on a mission to make makeup artistry and all those more challenging techniques not only more joyful and fun, but also easier and accessible for the widest audience of users possible. I'm curious, how did you discover makeup? What role did it play in your life? I mean, it's been huge for me. So I start, I've been playing with makeup probably as, as far back as I can remember. I used to go to the cosmetics counter with my mom four times a year growing up back in the day where there was only the legacy brands, the big guys, and they would launch a new collection four times a year. And I would go with my mom and we would go see Cesar, which was the, he was like the makeup artist to go see in our town. And I would watch her. I would watch her as he would make up her face and he would celebrate her. And I would watch her leave so lifted and happy and excited. We would get home and she would say, this is mom. So, you know, don't play with it. And I would say, of course not. And then I would go into her, into her vanity in her bathroom and I would, of course, play with everything. So I started playing early and I just knew it's where I wanted to be. And funny enough, actually, Cesar years later got me my first job. But yeah, I think makeup for me just for some reason, unlike anything else, it just is a creative outlet that spoke to me and that for some reason I was good at. And it's what I would I would just do for hours. I would just sit and play for hours. It's where a lot of my confidence came from growing up. I was a bit of an awkward kid and I didn't always know how to connect with people. But you found very quickly that when somebody sits in your makeup chair, that's a connection point. When I think when something brings you that much joy, you want to share it. So I knew when I started my career as a makeup artist, I also was going to want to get education, which is what I did for decades. So not only was I working on set doing makeup, but I was building education programs for companies like Smashbox and Josie Merritt and Dior to help teach people how to apply makeup or teach people how to teach people how to apply makeup. And and yeah, did that very happily for many, many years. Right. And if you could talk a bit more about your career, you mentioned working on movie sets. I understand you worked in fashion shows. Where did your career take you? Yeah, across the board. I mean, whether it was celebrity or, you know, fashion week, I don't know which I loved more doing that or doing the education. It's probably, you know, they were probably equal, you know, about probably around 2010, I started shifting a little bit. I was sort of pulling back a little bit from working on set and doing fashion week and doing fashion shows and doing photo shoots because I had noticed that something funny was going on with my hand. 
that that natural skill set that I used to say I could look at your face, know how I wanted to celebrate it, and my arm and my hand would just make it happen. Something was shifting and it wasn't working as easily. So I found myself sort of leaning more towards the education piece and, and doing more there without quite understanding why. And I was doing that for several years before I sort of figured out some answers. So you said that you noticed that your abilities were changing. What was it that was different for you? I'm sure there were other memories, but if I could think back to you know what is now I, I, probably the distinct memory, and somewhere around 2010, I was on set working with a model I'd worked with numerous times. It was with a crew I knew. The look was uh, fresh, clean, pretty, as they call it, which is you know for makeup artists pretty simple to knock out in 20 minutes. 20 minutes came and passed, and then 30 minutes and 40 minutes, and you know I'm go taking longer, and I just kept thinking, what is this disconnect? And somehow I got through the day. But it was odd. And I thought, well, I don't know what that was. Let's ignore that. But those moments kept happening and that disconnect started to grow. So from a disconnect, I started finding like I'd get this stiffness in my shoulder. My fingers weren't moving independently uh, from each other in, in a way that they normally would. Um, and so that those changes were was leading me to go see doctors and sort of say, what's going on here? And for about five years, I was getting answers like, well, you're getting older and do you work out and do you taking vitamins? Do you have cocktail hour? Because maybe no more drinks for you. Or like what all these sort of strange, you know, you sort of sit there and think, that can't sound right, right? Like I'm I'm no older than all my other friends in this industry and they seem to be doing okay. And I, I take some vitamins, but you know, but we're not all, you know, do I work out enough? Who does? But like they just didn't seem right, but you kind of accept it because in some ways, while it's frustrating, it's better to hear than something works, right? But as time went on, at some point along those five years, I started to hit a point where not only was it just a disconnect executing artistry at the level I always had professionally on somebody else, but I was starting to struggle doing makeup on myself. And I was like, this is insane. Something has to be wrong. And, and fortunately, I finally got in front of the right doctor who very quickly said, you know, we will confirm, but I'm pretty sure you have Parkinson's. And that's what it turned out to be. And it's well, certainly not the greatest news in the world to receive. On some level, it was such a relief to finally know what was going on. And there was something very empowering and like, okay, well, now at least I know what's in front of me. And I like to say that that's kind of the day that Guy Beauty was born. Because I ran, ran home with tunnel vision thinking, all right, well, now I understand what's happening here. Maybe I can solve for this. And I started to try to create some prototypes first just for myself. And then obviously things things became much bigger than that along the way. That's an amazing reaction to, you know, what must have been very difficult news to take in. Why was that one of the, the first things that came to your mind? It's funny. I, I remember sitting in the room when I got the diagnosis. I kind of saw it coming. My father was with me at the time. He was a retired physician. And afterwards, he said, honey, are you okay? It kind of looks like, looked like you kind of glazed over there for a minute. Where did your mind go? And I'm sure it went all in a million different places. But I started thinking about how I care for myself how I present myself to the world and how it's something I've always owned. So like I can throw on a caftan that's a pretty easy and a cocktail ring, beautiful outfit, easy to do. I can get my hair blown out. Makeup is a daily thing and it's something I've always owned. It has not only been my livelihood, but again, my creative outlet. It's where my community is, my greatest relationships. And the thought of not being able to have that for myself was devastating. And so I just wasn't willing to let it go. It's a much bigger thing for me than just a little lipstick. It's something that has been mine and has brought me again so much joy that if there was a way to hold on to it, I was gonna I was gonna find it. Come hell or high water, right? I was I was gonna figure it out. We'll be back to the interview in just a moment. 
But first, I have a question for you, made for us listeners. I'd love to get your feedback on the show. You've taken the time to tune in, so I'd like to know what you think about this podcast and what you want more or less of. Are there any guests you'd like to hear from in future episodes? You'll find a super quick survey in the show notes, so I'd be really grateful if you could share your thoughts there. Now back to the show. And did you look for alternative makeup tools at the time? Were you trying to find other workarounds? Yeah, so I went home that day and I pulled out my makeup kit and I pulled out uh, my husband's toolkit uh, along with some duct tape and all sorts of crazy things and I started playing. And I was looking at the forms and I didn't exactly know why I was sort of gravitating to sort of the forms I was trying to play with. But instinctually, I, I think, you know, I've always understood mechanics of good artistry. And I was starting to pick up on, on certain things like grip and stability that were missing and why my hand was, it wasn't doing what it needed to do. The tool was no longer just this extension of my arm. I needed the tool to do more for me. So I started to build in these pieces. I, I saw that I was having a hard time finding things that already existed. So I knew I was going to have to create something. Then I, mean, I could see certain forms. If you think about most traditional tools and makeup, they mimic paintbrushes and artistry tools in other mediums, right? And they're very generally, they're sort of thin, round, cylindrical, and they're meant to be applied to something else. Like you paint a canvas, you paint a wall. Makeup artistry, you're painting a face at somebody else's face. When you take those tools and turn it around on yourself, you lose so much. There's no stability. There's no control. The grip is different. Where's your resting points? You also lose perspective, right? Because now you're looking in a mirror. There's so many more challenges for self-application that I never thought about in the in, in sort of the full sense that I was starting to recognize because for whatever reason, I was able to excel in this area despite what was lacking in the tools. And so I started to try to figure that out on my own. And that's kind of that aha moment, which is, wait a minute, I spent my whole career, not just as a big artist, but trying to make makeup easy for people. And I was missing something. I could only understand one side of the equation. I only knew what it meant to be a, or felt like to be a professional. Now I could understand the disconnect. So maybe I could solve from it in, in a new way that I couldn't before. And the big shift was then, we obviously, it was not just my prototypes. We went to a design team that introduced me to a whole world of inclusive and universal design. And that allowed me to see that, yeah, not only was it about making makeup artistry easier, but it was also about solving for a level of exclusion that I didn't realize existed based on how products were being developed and designed. But I didn't see it until my own experience allowed me to see it because I, I became the person who was watching myself getting pushed to the outside. Right. That's really interesting. And just going back to when you try to find alternative tools and you realized that there wasn't anything out there, were you surprised? I don't know if I was surprised. I think I was at that point, I was like tunnel vision. I just was looking to solve for this problem. I wanted to, to, to fill this void. If I was to answer sort of generally, would I be surprised now looking back? No, not because I don't think people care, but I think that people don't know. You don't know what you don't know. And if I if I go back through my career, all the times that I consulted for brands in product development, it was a room of people like me. It was a room of makeup artists. So we all come in with generally the same skill level, creating products for not just for everybody, but that's not the way to create products that are inclusive of everybody. You need to bring everybody into the room. So we weren't doing that because we were trying to leave somebody out. We thought as pros, we were best informed to create products for for, for all, right? But it can't just be a room of one person. It has to be a, a room that reflects the communities that we live in. And that's across all you know, gender, gender identity, skin tone, ethnicity, 
skill, ability, disability, you know, there's a wide range here and we need to cast the widest as possible. And that needs to happen at the beginning of the development process. I think, you, again, you just don't know until you know. Mm-hmm. And going back to the original vision for Guide Beauty, what was your goal in creating these products? Who were the users that you had in mind? I mean, everybody, you know, it's a lofty goal and it, it will always be a work in progress. But anybody and that wants to play in this space, I want to find a way to help them do that. And it just, it goes back to this can be such a joyful, fun space. It's, it's self-celebration. It's, it's caring for yourself as well. It's how you choose to present yourself to the world. It's a creative outlet. It's a beautiful community. And so the thought that somebody would be excluded is, is a bit devastating to me. So if somebody says, I want to be there, but I can't because, I want to find the answer to that. And I'd like to talk about your design process. You talked about casting the net as wide as possible. Can you share a bit more about your approach? So after working on my own prototypes for about six months to a year, we went to a design team that specializes in human factors engineering. And they introduced me to a concept called inclusive design and universal design. The concept that when you cast the widest net possible, when you factor in for those who quote unquote have the greatest need, you not only invite people to the party who were never invited before, but you make the party better for everybody who's already in the room. And that's the goal, right? So when we were in our design process, we spent three years with hundreds of test users. And it was, again, if you want to play in the space, come on in. So we had professional makeup artists, newbies. If you had arthritis, like me with Parkinson's, like my partner, Selma Blair, who has MS, you said, I'm just a, I'm decent at it. I could be better, or I've just never quite figured it out, or I just don't have enough time. I'm a busy mom. Whatever the reason was, it just come on in and play. And then you watch people and play with traditional tools and you wait to sort of see sticking points. And whenever you see a sticking point, you stop and think, how can I solve for it? And the interesting thing is you find along the way that the sticking points are almost always universally the same. It's just on what level it is challenging to you. What are some of the common challenges that you saw? Was there anything that surprised you? The two human factors that kind of presented themselves consistently across the board were uh, when it came to grip and stability. That that's where people tended to challenge, especially because we were starting with form factors around makeup techniques that require a greater, greater level of precision, like eyeliner and brow, where you need, you know, precision application. And even when you're doing either eye or brow, not only do you have to do it well on one eye, then you have to rinse and repeat to the other and have them match. So you know, good luck to any of us. It's challenging. And a lot of that is because the tools themselves are not designed with grip and stability in mind. And when you put those human factors and build in for them into the form, then it helps you whether you're the pro to be a better pro, but it also allows somebody like me now who can't apply my eyeliner any other way without it. So how did those insights then influence the first products that you developed? We had the design team, which was incredible. And so, you know, we, we, I remember the first group we had come in and we said, everybody bring in whatever you're using now, liquids, pencils, let's see, bring in, bring in your makeup bag and we'll watch it play. And then we're going to learn. And we created our first prototypes and then we invited them back in and I was so excited. And then one by one, everybody went, this doesn't work for me. This doesn't work for me. And I remember feeling so deflated and, and, and thinking, oh, we didn't do it right. And our head designer said, looked at me and said, what are you, crazy? This is amazing. We absolutely did it right. And I said, what are you talking about? We, the forms don't work. No, no, you're learning. This, what's happening right now is they're able to tell you the fact that they had such a distinct, like, this doesn't work. You're figuring out why it doesn't work. And then that informed the, 
next version, and then the next version, and the next version. So there were well over 100 iterations of our guideline before we got to where we are today. So it takes a minute. It's a process. But you know, if you're willing to invest the time, once you do that, then that sets the stage for you know other form factors that are beneficial in, in other areas of makeup artistry. And besides the tools, there's also the formulation of the makeup itself, right? C- can you share the thought process behind that? Yeah. So not you know, unlike what very often happens in, in cosmetics is, and nothing wrong with this, it's a process I've been part of for years, but there are stock components that exist. And as a brand, I can go in and I can get the stock component and then I can deco it and fill it with my formula. Everything we've done is custom because everything has to match up. So once we were creating custom forms for the tools, a new way to apply the eyeliner, the actual wand itself, or new brushes, or a new ring that allows you to hold the product a different way, then the formulas also have to be customized to match the tools. And so all those things kind of have to work together, which is also part of what takes such a long time because you're going back and forth between your ideal design, the engineering of the tools, we also wanted it to be beautiful and we wanted it to be clean and we wanted it to be cruelty-free and we wanted it to be vegan. We had There were a lot of check marks that we had to check off along the way that extended the process. And and I wonder how you thought about the, the size of the market as well, because you said earlier that this could be applicable to so many different people. What was your assessment of the size of the market for inclusive beauty products and tools? Yeah, I mean, I, my sort of goal is to show people, I think there's this misconception that you either create for some sort of, you know, some sort of, quote, again, quote unquote, norm, or, or that's the, the larger audience or some smaller, you know, group of people with some uh, level of disability or uh, chronic health condition. And what I'm saying is there are times where adaptation is needed, but that's not where the starting point should be. That when you include everybody in the process in the beginning, that we should all be able to enjoy the same products together. If they're informed by everybody, there'll be better products. Like I, I just think about all the examples. You know, we are surrounded by products and, and and items in our life that are sort of created through this lens, this inclusive and universal design lens on a daily basis that we don't realize. And one of the ones that I always uh, use as an example is like the remote control for the television, right? And so growing up, I did not have a remote control for a television. And my brother and I used to argue over who had to get up and walk two feet, walk two feet to change the channel. But the remote control was first created for people who had mobility issues, who could not physically get up and and cross the room to to do that. Now, most people don't recognize that, right? Like, But we all benefit. Now, today, I get to lean back. And actually, another example is now I probably don't even need the remote control anymore because it's it's voice audio. Like anytime you say, hey, Siri, if you've ever used an electric toothbrush, if you have ever been able to cross the street with your luggage with a curb cut effect, right? With a sloping sidewalk, self-driving cars, audio books, all of those things were created through this inclusive and then you know, to a universal design lens. And I think that's what I'm trying to sort of help people understand that this is not just a kind, nice thing to do. Of course, everybody should be included, but it's, you know, I understand from a business side, People need to understand that it's also a smart thing to do. And it is. It's a, it creates better communities and it creates better products. So why wouldn't we just create it through that lens? And in 2022, you announced that Selma Blair would be Guide Beauty's chief creative officer. How did that collaboration come about? Funny how the way the world works. I, you know, certainly wasn't, wasn't looking, but we have a mutual friend who introduced us that, you know, you, you two just have to talk. And so I'm like, sure, great. And I sent her some product. And then it was you know, during COVID sort of lockdowns, we ended up getting on a FaceTime 
and the FaceTime kind of came on and Selma's face was super close to, to the camera. And I was like, oh, hello. And she, the first words out of her mouth were, look at my makeup, look at my eyeliner. I did this. And, you know, which was obviously the, you're so excited to hear. But then we got into this long conversation. I think we started to connect over our love of makeup artistry and playing. And then we started talking about our journeys in our, with our own health and our, and our own diagnosis. And, you know, she has a similar story to mine in that it took years of people saying, and you're just getting older, you're, you're probably in your head, drink more water, there's nothing wrong with you, right? There were just so many connection points. And that kind of just led to, do you want to do this together? Like, should we be doing this together? Because she is brilliant. I mean, she has a long history in fashion and design, and this is her world. And so, and she was coming up with great ideas. So it just felt right. Like sometimes you just, it's like, like when you find the right partner in life, sometimes you just, you just click and we just knew we were, we could be on this mission together. So it wasn't pre-planned, but I, I don't know. The universe was very kind. And just personally, I'm always better when there are people are people around me. I, I don't like to be in a silo working on my own. So it's been a nice journey. And just for context for people who might not be familiar, she was diagnosed with MS. Correct. Yeah. So she was diagnosed with MS after, right after she had her son, might be around 10 now, she started to notice changes in her health. And she spent many years trying to get answers. And similar to sort of how I shared, so it was a long path. And then when she finally found out what she was dealing with, she took it upon herself. She understood that she had an opportunity to help inform and educate and bring awareness to a community. And she engaged really quickly. And she's just been a tremendous, tremendous advocate. And I read in an interview that she said, you know, when she discovered Guide Beauty, she felt alive again. I'm curious what you've heard from other users over the years, because I know you've got a lot of letters from people. Yeah, I love those letters. It's you know, sort of across the board. There's this, there's between people who say, you know, you've given me back something that I thought I'd lost forever or how fun for the first time. I never thought that I was could be part of this world or I could do this. And I did. I got a, a really lovely letter from a retired judge who every day she wore her eyeliner and her mascara. And due to a degenerative uh, health condition, she had no longer been able to apply her makeup. And she wrote somewhere something along the lines of she sharing that, you know, for her, her eyeliner and her mascara were sort of just as important as to her and, and it gave her as much confidence and value as her role as a judge. And so to have that back was so meaningful. It sort of it helped bring back and give her back part of her identity. And then one of the really cute ones was uh, somebody wrote, I never in my life have been able to apply eyeliner or mascara. I'm so excited I could cry. Thank goodness this is waterproof. I, at the very least, knew the products would connect because I wasn't creating them on my own, because I wasn't doing that thing where let me create a product and a marketing story and then tell you you want it. The community created the products with us. But those letters are uh, on the days where you're kind of under the table and you're like, oh my Lord, I don't know if I can do this anymore. Then you get a, a message like that. And you're like, nope, I'm back at it. It's the thing that keeps you going. Yeah, I'm sure. And who would you say are your main users? Is it the audience that you initially had in mind? It is very universal. I think it is across the board. And so, you do, so if you're looking at sort of two people, you have the pro, right? And somebody who over time due to chronic health conditions has not been able to 
access makeup the way they, they used to, and they're both using the same products. I think you, know, you kind of played with, well, maybe it'll lean more to this audience, maybe it'll lean more to that audience. But it's hard to say that it's any one particular person because the goal really is that universal design. And I remember reading that you said disability is the only minority group that we'll all find ourselves in eventually. 100%. It's kind of silly that we call it a minority group, right? We are all more or less able at any given moment, day of our lives, and just the virtue of if we exist, if we're living, we're aging. And that means that, you know, for whatever reason, whether it is temporary or it's chronic or, you know, it, it's we're going to be there. So you're not just designing for somebody else. These products are for all of us. And given the universal appeal of, of these products, so the fact that you've connected with so many people, wh- what has your growth been like as a business? It's, it's been tremendous. I feel like we, we launched in 2020 and I, I joke that I did desk sides, which is when, you know, when you're going to launch a brand or a new collection, you go and you meet with beauty editors, you meet with press, you want to show people your product and hope that they get excited about it, want to share it. I did that. And then two weeks later, COVID shut everything down. Oh, wow. And I was like, uh-oh. So there's no retail conversations. There's no a new brand and there's no place to sell. Thank goodness for social media. And right. And, they, and because that's what happened in a lot of ways, those challenges, in some ways, not that I would wish for the COVID moment to happen, turned out to be a bit of a blessing because everybody got a chance to kind of slow down. And we, I started doing a lot of this, just talking to people, you know, Sending product, getting on on calls with people who are like minded or or makeup influencers or mommy bloggers, and just sort of naturally, authentically connecting, which I think is more valuable than anything, right? And one of the things that you know we've talked about in this conversation is changing the narrative when it comes to designing products. Do you feel you've had the impact that you'd like to have on the industry in, in terms of changing the narrative? I think we're on our way. Are we there today? No. Are we so much further than we were when I launched? Absolutely. There are times where I think adaptation and and, uh, accommodation is really key and important. And there's times where I I certainly want it for myself. I just don't want that to be the first stop along the way. I want really authentic inclusion to be the ultimate goal. I think, you know, the industry in general has come a long way in a short amount of time across the board in terms of diversity, equity, and inclusion. We're still not there, right? But it should always be a, a work in progress because the day we think we're done, we've done something wrong. And how can people follow your work? How can they learn more about Guide Beauty? Yeah, you can certainly um, follow us on Instagram at Guide Beauty Cosmetics, right? Guide Beauty on TikTok. You can reach out to us at here for you at guidebeauty.com, which is where our customer service or our beauty guides are. You can visit our website at guidebeauty.com. Any one of those places. We're we're here. We're ready. We're waiting for you. That was Terry Bryant of Guide Beauty. If you'd like to learn more, you'll find all the links in the show notes. As always, if you enjoyed this episode, please pass it on to someone who might like it too. And don't forget to share your feedback on season one of the podcast by taking our quick survey, which you'll also find in the show notes. I'm Tosin Suleiman. Thanks for joining me on Made For Us. book mean baby by selma blair it's a must <laughs> and uh and then oh a song oh i'm gonna say god there's so many i'm gonna date myself but one that always brings me joy is as by stevie wonder <laughs>